Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you're new around here, my name is Rich, and I'm part of the team that helps to lead the church. And especially if you're new, I pray that God speaks to you this morning. Whether we're used to this sort of moment or whether it's a bit new for us, I pray that God speaks to you. We're going to return to those very difficult, very important words from Revelation 14 shortly. But before that, and to help us understand that lot of words, I want to take us away from them for a moment to somewhere else. Uh, Anybody know where this is? Anybody recognize it? See some gentle whispers, some eyes rolling as they notice that it's football pitches. This, if I was allowed to go on a pilgrimage, I think this is where I would go. Um, And it's maybe just up the road on the motorway up to Staffordshire. This is St. George's Park. St. George's Park is the national centre of excellence, the performance centre for English football. It's where the age group teams meet. It's where the women's team comes to train and play when they're in camp. It's where the men's team comes. It's where the sports scientists are based, the dietitians, the physios, the doctors, the coaching teams, Gareth Southgate, all of his waistcoats, his negative tactics. It's all based at St. George's Park in Staffordshire. And just after it was built in 2012... A really deliberate piece of uh, decoration was brought slap bang into the middle of the site. They decided to put up a massive, great big electronic clock right in the centre. A clock that all the players, all the staff, all the coaches would walk past every single time they were on site. And that clock was counting down in years, months, days, hours, minutes, and seconds to the start of the Qatar World Cup in 2022. At that point, 10 years off in the far and distant future. You see, English football had a goal to win the Qatar World Cup. It was setting its sight on that tournament, and uh, that was the moment that everything else was building towards. And so that people might not lose focus and might remember that everything they were doing now, every decision they made, every shortcut they took in training, every cheeseburger they pretended they hadn't had but actually had had and the dietitians were stressing about, or every extra bit of running that they decided to do in training was all getting its meaning from the future day that was coming. A moment of reckoning on the global stage and so that we might live and they might live each day in light of that day, they smacked it up on the wall in front of their face so that they could see it. And we know that in uh, Qatar, it didn't quite happen. We know it didn't quite happen, and uh, Harry Kane's penalty continues to rise. It's nearly at the right hand of God the Father, (laughs) high above every other ball that's ever been kicked, and our hearts weep still. But even though it didn't go so well, do you see the logic? 
of putting that day in front of their faces. Revelation 14 is that clock for you and for me and for Christians. It doesn't give us a date and a time. I'm not doing that. Don't worry. But nevertheless, it throws up before your face in technicolor the reality of a coming future day that feels far off and in the distant future. And yet tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock is coming. And so that while we're going about our lives, our waking, our sleeping, our eating, our drinking, our working, our playing, our laughing, our weeping, whilst we're doing life, Revelation 14 is trying to help you live each day in light of that day. And so while I've got lots of little points to throw at you and there's going to be a bit of a barrage, and just so you know, that's the only picture on the slides. It's the only light relief. So if you need that in your veins, drink it deeply now because we're going for text and hard truths for a little while this morning. And there's going to be two big questions that we're looking at. Number one, what is going to happen when time runs out? What is going to happen when the clock tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock reaches the end? And secondly, how then, working back, letting it cast its shadow over us, how then should we live each day in the time that remains? Firstly, and for most of the time, what will happen when time runs out? And that's what verses 14 to 20 are all about. Now, this isn't the only teaching in Scripture on that great and momentous day of the Lord that is coming. But John sees three things that we can spot. Firstly, Jesus will return as king and as judge. Verse 14, then I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the son of man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Almost every word in that has Bible imagery that we could do a whole session on. But let's rattle through a few of them so we see what's being said. John sees a cloud. That's often symbolic of God's presence in Scripture. And on the cloud, there's someone sitting on it who's like a son of man. Now, when I first became a Christian and started reading the, the Gospels and getting my head around some of that, or not, as the case may be, I thought that Son of Man was the sort of twin of Son of God, as a phrase. So you've got the Son of God bit of Jesus, he's sort of God, and then you've got the Son of Man bit of Jesus, he's also a human. That's what I thought that meant. That is true, but that's not what that means. Son of Man is a very loaded and specific, deliberate title given to one figure in the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel, and in Daniel, I didn't check the chapter, I think it's chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of God Almighty, right? The Ancient of Days, the, 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 the King of Glory, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and he sees this vision, and the great and powerful God then is approached by another figure. 
And you think, you can't just approach God. And yet God, the Ancient of Days, gives to this figure all authority, all power, all dominion. He says, you can have a throne that will last forever. You're going to now be the king that reigns over everything forever. And that figure is called the Son of Man. And we don't really learn anything else about the Son of Man pretty much through the whole of the Old Testament until this, this sort of weird eccentric carpenter rocks up in the New Testament called Jesus, and he starts describing himself as the Son of Man. And here's the thing. He doesn't really seem like the one to whom all authority has been given in the Gospels at times because he's doing his carpentry He's laughing with children. He's getting arrested, whipped, mocked, killed. Doesn't even have the courage, it seems, to speak up for himself. He doesn't protect himself and he dies and everyone legs it. He doesn't seem like the one to whom all humanity will give an account. He just seems like a dying carpenter. But just before the dying carpenter died then rose, then ascended to heaven, he himself, to help us and help his disciples, spoke of a day when his future kingship, his authority, his right to be king and judge over your life and every life in this room and every life on this rock called earth would be clearly revealed and would be unquestionable. And it was when, in Jesus' words... The Son of Man comes on the clouds. And so you see in Mark's gospel, he says, everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. If you ever think that my teaching is repetitive, Jesus says the same thing. Luke 21, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Matthew 24, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so here now what John is seeing in Revelation is like an advanced viewing, like a trailer of that great day that Jesus himself spoke about where everyone would see him and know that he is king. And see that the crown of thorns that was on Jesus' head when he was just a dying carpenter, now that's gone. Now on his head is a crown of gold that signifies that he is king. And in his hands, there's no longer a sharp nail cutting through his hands, though, hallelujah, his scars remain because what he did on the cross in dying for us lasts forever. But there's no longer a nail cutting through his hands. Now, instead, in his hands, there is a sharp sickle. I'm from the countryside and yet know nothing about farming, but I think a sickle is a tool to aid you if you're wanting to do one of two things. It helps you if you want to gather in a harvest of that which is alive and very fruitful, and it helps you if you need to cut away that which is dead. And Jesus, meek and mild, when he returns, is returning to do just that. He's returning as judge, to pass a judgment, to discern 
between those who are alive and fruitful and those who are dead. And we see a little bit more of what that looks like in the next verses. Second thing, that Revelation 14 is whacking up before your face so you can see it, is that a harvest will be gathered in. Verse 15, then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, swing the sickle. For the time of harvest has come, the crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. It's something that you've got to get used to in the Bible. You get talked about quite a lot in the Bible in farming agricultural language. you just got to roll with it. So there's a lot of seeds and crops and harvests and God's work in your life is often described as sowing stuff or planting stuff. And we talk of ourselves as wanting to grow. We want to be fruitful. We know we're going to reap what we sow. You see all that language. And it's kind of unclear because I don't get it. But I also find it so kind of God to use that language because it acknowledges that life is often filled with delay and hardship. And the work of Jesus often seems hidden and very slow. And in fact, doesn't seem hidden and slow. Is hidden and slow. Imagine who's getting this uh, book of Revelation first up. It's not Turkish believers today, though they need it. And it's Turkish believers back then who were getting destroyed by the Roman Empire, ripped apart by animals for their faith. And they're crying out, if you've been around for a few weeks, you'll remember this, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And Revelation 14 gives them and gives us the great news that tick-tock, 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 the clock on the era of life that is sowing, waiting, and planting is going to run down, and it will be harvest one day. And if we are those that know Jesus and are alive in him, connected to him, bearing fruit for him, then he will gather us in. The waiting will be over. The work of God that's hidden and slow will then be visible and fulfilled. And so however disconnected and stuck in waiting you feel, look at that day. The harvest is coming. But that isn't the only use of the sickle in this passage. Number three, judgment will be poured out. Tremble at these words. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. 
the grapes were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. Now these words are obviously symbolic because people aren't grapes and yet are deliberately communicating in that symbolism something very, very, very serious and terrifying. And they're very hard words to read and they're very hard words to hear if you're in any way soft-hearted. And I'm aware that as we talk about judgment and punishment, there's a lot of care needed, right? And there's lots of work to do, but here's the thing. This comes up, like, all the time in Revelation, and the, 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 the bit of me that wants to give you every way of fitting into the truth of God's love and how it fits and why justice is a good thing and and do all of that work with you for 10 or 15 minutes. That bit of me is yearning to do that, but we, we can't kind of do it every week. And so if you need, which I do, to grapple with how does this all fit together? You're not naughty. That's okay. You can ask those questions. You must ask those questions. And if you want to do that, I want to flag up two quick resources because I'm not giving you any more time of this. You can either, how arrogant is this, speak, listen to a talk I did before Christmas on November the uh, 13th. Um, And it was called The First Six Trumpets, which will make sense if you listen to it. And in that, I gave you 15 minutes of trying to help you see how this isn't a different God or him flying off the handle with no justification. I tried to do that work with you. So if you need that, listen to that. Or I would really recommend this book, which I read in just a, a, a half a morning this week. It's not a long book at all. Uh, a Raising Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Theologically really robust but emotionally very intelligent and honest on the difficulty of these themes. So I really recommend that if you need that. But that's it. I'm not going to do any more on that. Because today I'm going to instead do something I've not done so much, which is I'm going to call you, however you feel about these words, to tremble before them and submit to them, because it is God's word. Isaiah 66 Verse 2 says this, God says this, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts and tremble at my word. You know what we're meant to do with these words? Maybe when you heard them read out, you thought, what's Rich going to do with these words? (laughs) Wrong question. What are you going to do with these words? And God says, tremble before them and ultimately submit to them because they are God's words. He is the potter. I am the clay. I don't get to write his thoughts for him. His ways are higher than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. I am dust. It is a miracle of grace that I have breath within which to articulate my emotional difficulty with Scripture. I don't sit in authority and judgment over him. He sits in authority and judgment over me. He's the king. 
He's the judge. I am not. And if you're first time here, you might think, well, this guy's like a hard-hearted nutter. That might be true, but that isn't my heart to you. I've tried to do the piecing it all together stuff elsewhere. But when push comes to shove, we want a culture of questioning. That's okay. We want to not shy away from the difficulty. But when push comes to shove, he's coming on the clouds. He's the son of man. And so I bow and I say, whatever you say, however I feel, your will be done. So question one, what will happen when time runs out? Jesus is returning as king and judge. A harvest will be gathered in. The judgment will be poured out. And he, he's throwing it up in front of your face so that you might live each day in light of that day. And so what does that look like? Is the second big question. How should we live in the time that remains? That's what verse 6 to 13 are all about, I think. First thing, spread the good news across the globe. Verse 6, and I saw another angel flying through the sky carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This verse says that there's good news. And later in the passage, I think we see it. It talks about God's wrath, God's punishment, God's anger against sin as being like a cup of his wrath. You recognize that phrase? And then you see Jesus in his first coming, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's calling out to God, let this cup pass from me. And he's trembling, and he's sweating blood, as he reckons with the reality that he's going to have to drink deep from the anger and punishment of God on the cross. And he can't face that thought. And he says, God, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, pass from me. And then somehow, hallelujah, he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he gets up and he walks to the cross And he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. And then he says, it is finished. As he has borne the anger and wrath of God in our place for any who give their allegiance to him. He says, I have done it for you. And you might face that final day when you come before God and you might not be in the wine press, but you might be part of the harvest by the grace of God. There is good news. And what Jesus did in his first coming is the good news that people need for his second coming. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. This is why we want to believe for the day when Jesus is the most talked about person in our city. That day is why we're believing that Jesus would be talked about here. It's why we sow seeds in our communities. It's why we do Alpha. It's why we... We, we sent Rich and Judy and Helen to Beirut. It's, it's, it's why we sent Jess to Chad. It's why we've sent Andy and Heather to Cairo. It's why Jonathan this morning is at Church Central North trying to help get their church flourishing even more so that they can be a gospel community in the north of the city. It's why 
Our church in Central House in Highgate today is baptizing people with many nations gathered because there's good news. And it's why we're looking to pray and seek opportunities to get more embedded into more communities in Birmingham. Yes, so we can serve. Yes, so we can bless. But, oh my goodness, one massive way we can serve and bless is to help people know there's good news. There's good news. How do we live this day in light of that day? We share good news. Number two, we fear glorify and worship Jesus verse 7 says this fear God he shouted give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge worship him who made the heavens the earth the sea and all the springs of water what is our response to the big old day that's coming when he's judge with a, a sickle in his hand we fear him now We bow in humble reverence of him now. We do not swagger through life telling him what he can do. We glorify him. That is, we acknowledge him as the most glorious one. We worship him. That is, we acknowledge him as more worthy, more deserving of our love, our attention, our money, our allegiance, our bodies than anyone else, than anything else. We offer everything to him Today, because he'll be revealed as the Lord of everything on that day. We sing praise and cry out to worship in worship to him this day, because all creation will bow down and fall in worship of him on that day. And of course, goodness me, of course that's about more than singing songs on Sunday. Of course it is. It's a, a body is a living sacrifice. 24-7. But I tell you what, you read Revelation, there's an awful lot of gathered singing in Revelation. Loads of it. And so I tell you what, I give myself to gathered moments of singing and I belt out those songs, whether I can find the tune or not, whether I know the song or not, whether I'm having to wipe snot off people or throw biros and colouring and whatever it is, I show up and I belt out songs of praise to Jesus because I'm centering myself on the reality of that coming day and he is worthy of worship. Sometimes I used to sort of cynically eye roll at times of singing in churches, especially when there are earthquakes happening around the world. And I think we're just escaping. We're just coming to a little room to sing some little songs. We're escaping reality. When we worship, we are lining up with reality. The coming day. Tick tock, tick tock. And we are saying, now we're going to join in. Prophetically, We give ourselves to God in worship now. Number three, resist this world's attempts to win your allegiance. In verse 8 to 11, I won't read all of it, that there's a, a warning around what that future day will be like for those who've teamed up with Babylon or the beast. Babylon is kind of symbolically referring back to this city in the Old Testament. Stick with me. This city in the Old Testament that didn't love God, didn't worship God, but got loads of God followers to come to it, and then through intimidation or just like nice 
flattery and education slowly try to erode their allegiance to the true God and try to make them live just like Babylonians live. And that city is no longer here, but that cultural dynamic is alive and well. And Jonathan helped us last week understand what the beast is. Is the beast like a physical, literal animal with loads of heads? No, the beast is the world system that is trying to make you not worship God and give your allegiance instead elsewhere. And Babylon and the beast pop up in these verses quite a lot. And I think what we can see, you know, I am going to read them. I think what we can see is that it would be really stupid to team up with Babylon and the beast. Today, it feels very wise. But on that day, it will be very stupid to have teamed up with Babylon and the beast. Let me read in verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. That great city is fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Being a Christian is tough. Allegiance to Jesus is tough. You will be very glad you stuck with Jesus on that day. We're coming to a finish. I'm almost done. Fourthly, how should we live today? We should keep going. We should keep going. This chapter wasn't written to be a weapon against other people. It was written to jolt the church that was getting lukewarm into clarity, into uh, sharpness of thinking. And you know what? However life is going, however we're feeling, we keep going with Jesus. We keep going. Verse 12, this means God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obey his commands and maintain their faith in Jesus. That's so unglamorous. Endurance, patience, obedience, maintenance. These are not the words with which I was one to the Christian faith. I was sold life to the full, which it is. But how do you find your life? You lose it. And so what does faithful Christianity look like sometimes? Endurance, patience, obedience, maintenance. Not throwing in the towel, keeping going. What Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. Keep going. And lastly, from verse 13, live for the moment that you die. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. 
from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. I'm going to finish with this lovely bit of good news. You're dying. And there's a clock ticking on each of our lives. And when that clock ticks for the last time, and I've borrowed this line of thought from Francis Chan, when the clock ticks for the last time and we breathe our last breath and we see God and we stand before God, that is the most important second of your existence. And every single other moment put together that you have ever lived, summed up and put into one big lump, will be infinitely less important than that day when you see him. And we've seen that if we're not lined up with God and we're, we're not living fruitful lives connected to God, if our allegiance isn't with Jesus, then he has a sickle in his hand. But if when we die... You die in the Lord, then goodness me, you are blessed, for there will be rest. Do everything you can each day so that when you die, you die in the Lord. And that will be a life well lived. See the day that's before our faces in this chapter. Tremble and live each day in light of it. Let me just pray.